is time for the 99th commemorative edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. We are barreling toward number 100. David Campbell, your host here, and I am joined, as I am every week, by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, I got to tell you, we um, we put out a call last week, and you were asking people to send in their stories about Cleveland sports connections. But we, for our 100th episode, we're going to read some responses from listeners. And it is so crazy. We're getting emails from not only the Cleveland area, but also like Slovenia and Kenya and the United Kingdom. And people who listen to the podcast, Pluto Nation is everywhere. Well, it's it's impressive. Well, I just sent you one that I got from a guy from Italy, since you and your wife were there recently. I guess you guys got together and you told him to That's right. listen to the podcast. Listen to the podcast. So, um, so, so speaking of Italy, Terry, yes. I wanted to start off. This is kind of a, a fun thing, but I've been noticing on the uh, TikTok machine and on YouTube shorts and all this stuff that people are asking guys, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And some people apparently think about the Roman Empire every day. And I'm like, well, I've, so I have two questions for you, Terry. Has Roberta ever asked you how often you think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> no. Okay, so how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I'm going to ask you the question. Well, that doesn't Hero, Mr. Hero, have a Roman burger? They do, yeah. So that would, I guess that would well, be that an instance. Count, <laughs> not, not a lot, but that's what comes to mind. And so it's sort of like, I was on WTAM this morning. They asked me what I thought of Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. <laughs> I said nothing. I thought nothing of it. Whatever. All right. Well, so, so you think of the Roman sure Empire when Roman you're getting Empire. a Roman burger. I mean, now and then, you know, you act like the Roman Empire fell, all that kind of stuff. But it's just uh, probably the Roman burger would be the closest. So. Yeah, All I'm right. the same way. Like, I, I, I think of it maybe when I see Gladiator on TV or um, there was that thing going on where mm -hmm. people, tourists were writing on the Coliseum. Oh, well, it's I mean, like, I was more yeah. interested to read the thing we had at Cleveland.com about the 10 Italian restaurants. Now we're talking about there what you, you go. to think about. So. <laughs> All yeah, right, that. so we're going to get into some sports here, Terry. All right, the, the where, Browns, is, where do you the, get – where's your favorite pizza? Oh, man, I don't know. I kind of bop around. Do you have one? I like Angie's and Independence. Hmm. It's very good. There's others too, but I do like that one. I'm gonna have to get over there. We usually just go. We just try a different place every time we get pizza. So I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to check okay. that one out. So maybe that could be the next thing. We'll ask people to See, send you, in a pizza. You were bored with that, like I was the Roman Empire. So <laughs> all right, what about the Browns? Let's. I roll. do think about. I do think about pizza every day. But okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So the Browns, Terry. Um, and then we'll get into a little bit of the Guardians and the Cavs have media day on Monday. I want to kind of talk to you about that a little bit. You wrote about Kevin Stefanski uh, after the game the other day. And we were talking last week about how, all right, the defense has been fixed. The special teams are not a liability. This is going to be on Kevin Stefanski in the mm -hmm. offense. And you made some really good points the other day. I thought about the way Kevin Stefanski approached that game against Tennessee coming right out of the blocks. Yes. I, he, you know, now I'm hearing, oh, they they let they let Deshaun play. They went to the empty backfield. This, you know, they acted like he threw, you know, fifty thousand passes in that game. Um, if you really looked, especially the first half, what was the idea to do is just to get Kevin, I'm sorry, Kevin to get Deshaun to complete some passes. That's it. And I actually believe that was the plan in the Pittsburgh game, but then. The interception, as um, Joel Batonio said, we kind of panicked. I appreciated the um, honesty on that. By the way, question, Deshaun Watson threw more passes in which game, Pittsburgh or Tennessee? Well, I have the stats here, so I, I, yeah. I'll try it, but, I, but I'm pretty sure it was Pittsburgh because they were behind. Yes quite a few more. I think it was 42 to 33. Yeah, let me see here. So he was 22 of 40 against Pittsburgh, and he was 27 of 33 against the Titans. Yes. So, I mean, he was on, and he, well, but let's not get into this uh, let it rip, because Nick Chubb's not there or whatever. No, let it, you have this great defense. That is, that is your engine. So let them work, and also, don't give the ball to the other team. It's not about being Charlie Checkdown, game manager. But it is about not, you know, throw the throw the ball away instead of taking the sack. 
And Deshaun was good, other than that weird play behind him to Elijah Moore. Um, the rest of the time, you know, he was either on target or um, he just didn't make destructive plays. So we kind of microanalyze every game, Terry, as we should. But I, real quick, I want to pull back and get your thoughts on, do you think this is what the Browns had in mind all the time? Like we're going to take the first year with all the legal issues with Deshaun, he's only going to play six games. It's going to be a rough ride. But going into year two, we're going to have it all together. The defense is built up. And now, do you feel like this is what the Browns were hoping would start to happen right now? Well, really, this is the first good game he's played. And I think by now they believed he would have gotten more than that, uh, other than just one. So let's put some context to it. But I think the basic thing was, David, they just didn't want Baker Mayfield anymore. They were tired of Baker Mayfield. Then it was like, what are our options of getting a veteran quarterback? You know, Matt Ryan, you know, that kind of list of suspects. Carson Wentz, that's always floating around. No, we don't want to do that. Then there was the Watson thing. So they spent all their analytics and all their film work and all the stuff on Watson. He's, you know, he's going to be 27 when he's eligible. Uh, their research showed that he would get between six and eight game suspensions. So they thought they'd get half a year out of it. Uh, and they just would ride it out. I mean, Jimmy Haslam did not build, and his father did not build a couple of gas stations in Tennessee into this mega thing you saw around the country that Warren Buffett has since bought for $8 billion, I may add, um, by being conservative. They'll take a shot. Johnny Manziel, they'll take a shot. This is the kind of things they, they like to do. That That's in how they are wired, the Haslam's are. So they were, you know, they were willing to go for it. The thing about this shot, you know, Johnny Menzel was one thing. Okay, you blew a first-round pick. Here, you've got to at least come up with a pretty good quarterback for all that you've invested in him. Uh, to to my point of view, I was glad to see that I thought Deshaun was sticking with the game plan, and I, I didn't articulate real well that uh, how I – uh, how I saw that game go. So in the first half, get them going, complete some passes. You're up 13 to three. Meanwhile, three and out, three and out, three and out for Tennessee. By the middle of the third quarter, that offense is still doing three and out for Tennessee. And the defense is thinking, we'll never get off the field. And here came your coverage breakdowns, all that stuff. Cause there's their secondary is poor for Tennessee. The Browns knew this. It's soft and it's poor. So, And they also knew they couldn't really run the ball on uh, Tennessee, but I give them credit. You know, they did. They ran it 31 times. And, um, yeah, that's correct. They ran it 31 times. And, nice to have a lead, isn't it? Yes, and they threw it 33. I think that's what Stefanski has in mind. And also, you know, he averaged – uh, look, you threw 289 yards. You got them into some breakdowns, and that's what it'll do. In other words, I think the defense not only wears down the opposing offense, the the, the Browns' defense is wearing down the opposing defense because they never get off the field. That's a great point, yeah. And uh, Joel Batonio was talking about, like, we're standing over on the sidelines like, we got to get ready. We're going right back right in. Right back in there, yeah. And, and, and It's a feeling he hasn't go. had very often, yeah. No, and – and also just the their enthusiasm that you see. I know it's three games, but maybe Matt Gould knows this some. There's some high school team out there. Maybe he's only allowed one touchdown in three games. But it's an incredible stat. Well, I want to talk about that real quick, Terry. Before we get into the defense, you know, I saw a screenshot somebody took during the Bears' loss the other day. <laughs> To, to Kansas City and the the Bears were scoring a late touchdown and somebody shot like an overhead view of the sideline and all the Bear players are scattered along the sideline their team is on the 10 yard line getting ready to go in for their only touchdown of the day as they're being blown out and all the guys couldn't care less yeah like they're all scattered out. you watch this Browns team I mean you've been around this team for a long time Terry I'm having a hard time remembering when a bunch of guys playing for the Browns had this much fun 
playing together. I mean, it, it, it feels like they love going to work every day at this point, and we haven't seen that a lot in the past. No, Do you, are you get, seeing that too? Yeah, I am. In 20, they had good spirit too. Maybe not quite as effusive on defense. But they, they, that was a together team in 20. That team overachieved that won 11-5. and five. I mean, you look in the rearview mirror now, they went 11-5 and five with Baker Mayfield. And Joe Woods is a defensive coordinator. Uh, and I'm not there. I'm just saying you see the difference. Yes, there's a lot more talent on the defensive line, but JOK looks better. Walker looks better. All these other guys that have been around, uh, they just seem to be stepping their games up. You know, part of his talent, but a big part of his scheme and coaching. For sure. The 20 team, it felt like they had fun because they were winning a little yeah. bit to me. And this team feels like we're going to have fun and we're going to try to win too, but we're, we're just going to go out and play hard and have fun and support each other. And well, that it's, came it with feels Schwartz. genuine. I don't know. Yeah, well, that came with Schwartz saying mm-hmm. this is how we're going to play. I mean, look, Kevin Kevin Stefanski tried the, the jump or whatever that was with, with uh, Watson. That's not him. <laughs> But then again, Jim, Jim Tressel, my all-time favorite coaches, that wasn't him either. You know, close to the vest. Uh, so you yeah, that was really funny. Real Deshaun comes over the other day and he's trying to do a chest bump, and Kevin was like, "No, I'm I'm good on the ground." Yeah, it's like I don't I don't know how to do this, and but he was happy, and 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 that was a big thing. Where I was on defense, you know, Schwartz came in with this is how we do it, and the other guys look at Schwartz and know he's done it before in a couple of places and they all talked to each other in the NFL, like in any other business. And the word was out. You will like playing for this guy, even when he ripped you up a little bit because it does pay off. And he does have your, um, your best interest at heart. And frankly, I heard one to early, early press conference. I mean, Schwartz said something about, you know, a lot of the guys that I had, especially Lyman, they got paid. Which is what every player loves to have happen. Yeah. So, and, and I think what he's selling them is, you know, when we win and we're having a good time and playing together, we also get paid. All right. Well, Terry, speaking of numbers, let's get into some of these numbers on this okay. defense. All right. So th- they're allowing 163 yards a game. That's best in the league. The Bills mm-hmm. are number two at 253. Um, they're allow- The Browns are allowing 10.7 points per game. That's number one in the league. And that includes the pick six. Yeah. For, and I don't know why they roll that in on some of these stats, but um, they're allowing 52 rushing yards per game. The Bills are, are no, let's see who's number two. The 49ers are number two, I think, at 53 yards a game. The big thing. In oh, the, and the Eagles. The Eagles are at 43. So the Browns are second in the league at, yeah, in rushing the yard, yards. Yeah, yards per carry where there's like two points something. It's just, it's just incredible. The Browns have limited opponents to eight of 41 on third downs. <laughs> That's 19%. They're plus 41 in point differential. The we, have 400... to, we have to check this, by the way, David. I heard, and I'm going to give, I believe it was Tony Gross, young new credit, that he said from his research, the best NFL team ever on third down percentage limiting the opposition was like 24, 25% conversion. Really? And yeah. the Browns are at 19.5 right. yeah. through three and games. It was one of Belichick's New England teams. Um, but I think he was still working on that. But he said that was the lowest he had found so far. Well, that is something we'll have to be tracking. So um, the 491 total yards allowed by the Browns are the fewest allowed by the team in history through three games. <laughs> well, I can't be- well, I mean, I guess how far, do- I don't know if maybe it's those Paul Brown teams in the old days, but possibly, possibly. But even uh, like they're... the Kozar the teams and that, they had good defenses. They had good secondaries, but they were not you know, in any way, what we've seen here. Yeah. And it, it, I'm just, I just want to run through these a couple more here. Yeah. The Browns have forced 106, a negative 106 opponent yards and 26 negative plays. Jeez. Those are both fourth in the NFL. They've allowed only 21 first downs. That's mm-hmm. best in the league. And that's 20 less than the bills who are second with 41. Yeah. Uh, and- you've written about this a lot, Terry. They've allowed only two opponent drives inside <laughs> the red zone and just three points. And one of those drives came after a fumble when the Browns yeah. fumbled. So. Yeah, so it's like defense don't blame us. Um, I, I also think when you look at uh, you know, some, some of the numbers here, they've done that. Well, I think they only have two turnovers forced. I mean, you could say maybe they should turn them over or maybe just the fact the other team doesn't even stand the field long enough to make a turnover. It's just three and out, three and out, three and out. 
Um, well, that kind of is the next thing, Terry, right? Is, is yeah. they, they forced a fumble. Miles Garrett forced that fumble the other day, and the ball was you know, skittering out toward the sidelines, and the Browns acted like it was a pass mm-hmm. and let it go. JOK ran right past it. He probably could have scooped that thing up and made some yards out of that. Well, I would like to so, sit in, at film session, by the way. Can, <laughs> you, can you see Schwartz running that in slow motion and all kinds? Well, there yeah. it goes again. Anybody <laughs> plan on picking it up? Yep, yep. I'm gonna tell, always, but, always grab it and go. You never know what will happen. So, Bill Glass, who Miles um, Garrett finally passed Bill's all-time Browns sack record, by the way. And Bill was a mentor of mine in prison ministry and played for the Browns in the '60s. And we got him talking about film sessions with Paul Brown, and he said he had a game where he jumped off the side like twice, and Paul Brown would just play it. Oh, there's Bill off sides. And then they would go back to something. Then he'd flip back to it again. And then he'd go to a couple other things. And then he'd flip back to it again. And then that would happen. And then he said, he just showed it again. He goes, they looked at me and just said in a quiet voice, oh, Bill, tell me, do the great ones do that? Oh, uh, what a line. That? Huh? that was it. No more mention of it. He said, in other words, he showed it three times without speaking. Other than there goes Bill, but that's it. And then the last one, other than then, tell me, Bill, do the great ones do that? Well, Miles Garrett does. Every once in a yes, while. he does. Well, every game he jumps offside. But where I'm yeah. going with this, I do think with that fumble rolling along, Schwartz will have something like that. Yes, uh, and probably in uh, not, maybe not as calm as Paul Brown did. Yeah, but but it was one of those. He talked about how powerful the image was. Mm-hmm. You know, that especially you replaying it, it three you times, see it, you see yeah. it. And of course he says, you know, I'm six foot four, like two fifty. back then. That was huge. He goes, right now I'm under my chair. When by the time he says that to me and I'm wishing I was, dis- would disappear with six words from Paul Brown. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Terry, I, I want to ask real quick. Do you think, and it's only, you know, it is only three games in, but from what you've seen from this defense, do you think this could go down as one of the better, Browns defenses that we've seen, at least since 99, maybe longer than that. I mean, I don't know how far we want to go back, but you've been around the Browns for a long time. Does this team remind you of anybody? The way they play and the style and the aggressiveness and the the fun so far? Well, I'd have to look up the numbers. Belichick had a good defense in 94 here. Uh, I'd have to go take a look at that. Nothing is close since 99. You know, like the the, the teams in the 80s, they were offensive driven. They were not they had nice defenses in that, but you know nothing, nothing like this. Now we'll have to see when they go through, you know, the rest of the season. I'm fascinated. I'm very confident the defense facing Lamar Jackson, but we know how he's torn up the Browns in the past. So, and that will be a, a different challenge because the first three quarterbacks they've played are were not particularly mobile. Burrow, Pickett, and and Tannehill. I mean, they can move a little bit, but nothing like what. Uh, we're going to see with with Jackson. Well, yeah, big game coming up on Sunday. Uh, three mm-hmm. teams in the AFC North are two and one, and the Browns are one of them. So, um, I want to spend a couple minutes talking about Miles Garrett, Terry. What did you think of him the other day? And do you think there was a lot of discussion here and elsewhere about Miles Garrett versus T.J. Watt last week? And do you think you heard any of that? And I, I don't know. What did you think of what you saw on Sunday from him? I'm not sure about the Watt thing, but what I believe has happened with Garrett is, number one, um, he has a coordinator he can respect. I'm not sure he respected the other guys. Maybe Greg Williams when he first started, because Williams, I believe, had him as uh, in that first year or two. Uh, but even that, he was mad because Williams is limiting his moves or something. I remember there was some talk like that. Um, so, one is, and secondly, um, the excuse that Miles would have privately that I never was really surrounded with a whole lot of talent on the line is gone, and he knows that. I believe we have to check this, too, that Miles Garrett has never played on a team where anybody but him had at least 10 sacks. Last year, I believe, uh, I think uh, Tavin Bryan or whatever had like three sacks. And, you know, there, there was nobody else. So it's kind of like you can't complain. You're out there by yourself. Not when you got... 
Agbo, who I really like, by the way. Agbo, Agbo is, is kind of a sneak attack guy. You know, we see Desiree Smith and Tomlinson, but Agbo's look very good too. Um, and even Jordan Elias making some plays. It's all there. And then also, David, um, remember the line of Schwartz, take the seatbelts off? It's really off of, of Miles. I mean, he's wandering around all over the place. Tight ends are – he's doing basketball moves and this. And and I, I really believe Schwartz let him loose to have some fun. Oh, man, talk about fun. I think there was like 14 minutes left the other day. <laughs> they lined Miles Garrett up to Tannehill's blind side, where he usually is, and the Titans put a tight end and, and an extra blocker over there to block him. So Garrett's like, all right, I'm going to move to the other side. So he goes to the other side of the line. The tight end and the extra blocker follow him over there. <laughs> yeah. And then Garrett's like, all right, you guys are going to follow me here. I'm going back where I was. So he goes back to the right side of the Browns defensive line, and the guys follow him back over again. And by the, this point, the, the the play clock is down to nothing. The Titans have to call a timeout. Yeah, Tannehill. And, like, uh, yeah, and they showed Jim Schwartz on the sideline, and he's just busting up laughing. Yeah. And at the to the lengths at the lengths these uh, the Titans are going to to block Miles Garrett, and mm-hmm. and rightfully so. But uh, yeah, that that was really something. And you're talking about the impact he's having. But if you um, want to put two guys on Miles Garrett, um, somebody's not going to be blocked. It's as simple as that. I mean, somebody is going to be have a really good lane to the quarterback because a, an NFL person said to me, says they're not getting like a lot of you know sacks from the the tackles coming up the middle, but you could see the push. These guys aren't just stepping up in the pocket because you know a lot of times that rush comes from the outside. And what happens? They tell the quarterback, step up closer to the line of scrimmage in the pocket. But Tomlinson is coming with whether it's Shelby Harris or whoever they have, and they're pushing back. So it, it's it's really there. And then, of course, the secondary now, they know who they're supposed to cover. They're staying with that guy. And that way, it's it really is, you want to be good? Cover your man. That's kind of how Schwartz is. If not, I'll get somebody else to cover your man. Yeah, and just the consistency, Terry. You, if you watch the games, when the ball is snapped, if you watch in slow motion, and regardless regardless of who's on the defensive line, all four guys are coming off at the same time. Yep. They're coming off hard, and they're coming off low. It's like it's four clones. <laughs> it's just it's it's all in unison. It's like a, a, a you know a powerful three hundred pound ballet moving up the field at the same and, time or something. It's really and, impressive. And I appreciate the fact you don't have stupid taunting penalties. And I've not seen a lot of chief shots. They just slam you to the ground, and that's it. Then they dance around celebrating, but they're not, you know, glowing over you and pointing, and you're not having uh, flags going for uh, even on roughing the passer, which is hard to avoid sometimes. It really is. Uh, they haven't had too many of those. All right, so an interesting matchup coming up Sunday uh, against the Ravens down at Cleveland Brown Stadium. And, Terry, I know we've been wanting to do a weekly kicker review. Dustin Hopkins had a nice day on mm-hmm. Sunday. Do you want to talk about him real fast? All right, 48 yards, no problem. 52 yards, no problem at Cleveland. So he is now 7 of 8. The only one he missed was the 43-yarder, I believe, in, in uh, Pittsburgh. And um, it's just sort of reassuring to say, Three points when he goes out there to kick. And remember, three points are better than none. So when you have a good kicker, sometimes you don't have to go for it from fourth down. You just, with this defense, take the points. Three words for three points. And you're right about with this defense, Terry. Those are three important words. You can, Three points can be even bigger than three points sometimes when you got a yeah. defense that's playing like this one. So. All right, and as I am the unofficial president of the Dewan Jones fan club, I do yes. want to mention, and PFF grades, you know, they're a guide. They're not the Bible of how a person played, but Dewan Jones was the Browns' highest-graded offensive lineman this past mm. week. Wow. 65.3. Ethan Posich was at 64.3. Michael Dunn only had two plays, but Nick Harris had one play. Joel Batonio, 58.4. Jedrick Wills, 56.9. And Wyatt Teller, 54.8. So Dewan Jones... Uh, you know, people were watching him against uh, Watt the previous week, and he had a nice game against the Titans. So something to watch. And just yeah, I, mentioned I mean, it, so. I'm looking um, three sacks the Browns allowed and uh, five quarterback hits. First of all, that line for Tennessee is good. Their secondary is terrible. The defensive line is good. And secondly, Deshaun makes it tough on the lineman. I mean, he's going to get hit. He's going to give up some sacks just because of 
I haven't looked at the stats for this week, but the first two weeks he was holding the ball the second longest in the NFL. And in his last six games of previous years, he was holding on the ball the second longest in the NFL. So uh, those are really nice numbers. And maybe Dewan is just, he is so large and he has that basketball feet. You know, part of the ability of a guy to be a good big man in basketball is to be able to move not so much vertically, but horizontally. And that's a big part of the pass blocking. All right, Terry, anything else you want to mention on the Browns? I think that this is going to be a very revealing week because now you really do have the how do you handle success. Everybody's saying you're great again. Baltimore's coming off a tough loss, and Lamar Jackson has tormented the Browns. So let's see what comes of all that. All right, and then the Browns have a really early bye the following week in week five. So they uh, get to take a break after these uh, this string of four games. So, hey, Terry, I wanted to read a, a quick letter we got, an email from Jack in Erie, a longtime listener of the podcast before we move on from the Browns. And Jack says, hey, Dave and Terry, the greatest Brown since they have returned in 1999 is Jimmy Donovan. Yeah. My dad had season tickets, and we used to come up and back from Erie and listen to Jimmy. It's Jimmy. And, uh, you know, we want to wish Jimmy all the best as he's away here getting treatment. And uh, I, I know I can speak for Browns fans everywhere when we, we all miss him and uh, get well, back soon. And so. as Doug Deacon said, two of the toughest guys I could, I've ever been around, and I have a hard time deciding whether it's Nev Chan or Jim Donovan. Because Nev, who was here earlier in the 80s, uh, some of our older fans remember him. Nev died of 47 of cancer. And, of course, Jimmy's been battling leukemia. And Nev also says, I probably would throw Casey Coleman in there. He battled um, pancreatic cancer. But, unfortunately, Casey died pretty quickly. And um, it's just, I mean, this thing, he goes, and I saw that thing, you know, in football injuries, he said, but watching these guys, what they went through with cancer and leukemia and chemo and all that. Um, I mean, he when he's talking to me about that, because a few weeks ago I wrote about Doug, and he just brought that. He always brings that up on that. He had tears in his eyes about that. He didn't cry when he's talking about different things with the Browns or his own broken bones, but that he did. So, yeah, Jimmy, get back. Get well soon. Yeah, and thanks for that letter, Jack. I, I know there's thousands and thousands of Browns fans who feel the same way. So, all right, Terry, we're going to take a break here. When we get back, um, I want you to talk about the question that you asked Terry Francona the other day that kind of made him stop and think. So we'll get into that when we return on Terry's Talking. All right. Be right back in a moment. Sure. We're back on Terry's Talking. Terry Pluto and David Campbell. We are going to get into the Guardians here, Terry. They're 74 and 83. You stopped in the other day to interview Terry Francona, and he's heading into the last week of his managerial career in 11 Pretty impressive seasons in Cleveland, and I thought it was interesting. You actually asked him a question of, of all the interviews that he's done. Something you asked him kind of made him stop and, and pause. Talk about that story for a minute. I think he it was a pregame thing, and he probably was the usual "How's Bieber's arm?" or this or that, and and I and he's been periodically asked about retiring. But I just came out with, uh, "What do you enjoy about managing?" Pause. He goes, "Well, wasn't expecting that one." And I said, "Well, you've been doing it for 23 years." He said, yeah. And then he stopped. That's the thing. It's like, if you give him something good, you have to wait, too. Let him run with it. And he, the story's posted on Cleveland.com, and I believe it'll be in tomorrow's paper. First of all, I said that I didn't. he didn't go into baseball to be a manager. He goes, I've been around baseball since I could crawl. And his father, Tito, played for the Tribe and, and played 15 years in the big leagues, in fact. You know, Terry was a star. He played 10 years himself. Um, and he said, you know, I really, I really enjoyed being a bench coach. I love managing in the minors. Um, he said, I just like being part of the game. And I think, you know, he kind of gravitated towards managing. And I said something like, we've been doing it for 23 years. He goes, yeah, talk to the people in Philadelphia. They'll never believe that. Because in his <laughs> first four years, I mean, he just, he had terrible records there. And when you talk about how things work out in life, he had made friends with Mark Shapiro and Antonetti kind of just along the way somewhere. And when Francona was fired in Philadelphia, he then um, 
Cleveland brought him in just for a year as one of those kind of advisory things, come hang around, figure out what you want to do with your life next. And so he got to know them. And then he went after that. I forgot whether he went to Texas or Oakland, but he was a coach in both of those places and then eventually ended up managing the Red Sox. But that experience he had uh, after he was fired by the um, Phillies set it up. So in 2012, after that, when Francona had been out for a year from Boston and he saw that the tribe was looking for a manager. At that point, they had fired Maniac. Uh, Sandy Alomar had uh, managed the last six games, but they said they were throwing it open to interview people. And so he called Shapiro and Antonetti. said, well, would you consider me? And I guess he even wrote up some notes and things he wanted to do. And that opened the door because of the relationship that he had uh, with that year after he was fired by Philadelphia. I think there's something about Francona, too. He kind of remembers who was there for him when he was down. Well, they're going to be having a whole series of events on Wednesday night, kind of a fan appreciation for Tito thing during the, the evening. And that'll be a special night out there. Uh, but Terry, as the, we enter like the last week here, what do you think you're going to remember most about Terry Francona's time as a Cleveland manager. What, what do you think his legacy will be when you look back on it? Well, 10 he's years got a bunch of them, but the most, and this too bad fans couldn't see this part of it because um, in spring training, he will do, you know, maybe 10 minutes kind of on the record or whatever in the press room. And in Goodyear, there were not too many writers around, maybe three or four of us. And then you go, okay, Charles, the tape recorder. And he would just talk about. It could have been when he played high school basketball or just kind of things that are going on, old stories. Um, I remember he used to be very interested. I was telling him one time about Dennis Gates with Cleveland State's basketball. He loves college basketball. Just that stuff, you know, the human side of him. And then, you know, his stuff that later on he'd tell you for the record, well, I only own two pairs of jeans and all my shirts I have are freebies. And just the human side of him. And, you know, he's a stress eater. You know, he'd eat. 10 donuts when he was feeling it. I mean, that's part of the reason for his health problems have been as such. Uh, but you even get glimpses of it sometimes in the on-the-record stuff, the, the humanization of him. And when you guys here for 11 years, you can't fake that. I mean, this is, I think that's why he, I asked him, he, I said, um, you know, 11 years, managing one place is an eternity. He goes, you got that right. Um, because, and he said that this is pretty revealing. He said, you know, I picked Cleveland for the people, but I also believe they could win here. Don't misunderstand. He goes, I'm still testing and turning some nights after a couple of these bad games of late, even though he knows he's out. He said, but here's the thing. When you're in meetings here and when I walk out the door, I don't feel like they were just rolling their eyes at me and what I said. He goes, that's not the case everywhere. And so clearly it was what was going on in Boston. I mean, think yeah. about it. They're rolling their eyes at a guy that won two World Series where they never won any. Yeah, including a, coming back from a 3-0 deficit, which had had probably never been done before. But um, I, I really liked what you were saying about the, the human, humanization mm -hmm. that he brought to the game. And baseball is so – we have instant replay now, so you don't see Billy Martin going, you know, type tirades yeah. where guys are kicking dirt on the umpire. and. One thing about Terry Francona, he was he's he's one of I think the last maybe baseball characters mm -hmm. that we might see for a while because he's a baseball lifer. He was he loved the game and like you said he didn't intend on being a manager. It just kind of happened. But just he he just baseball just exudes from him and the fun of the game and the the, the interesting things he does away from the park. Like I think there's not a lot of characters. As, there, as many as there used to be in the game because it's kind of been sterilized a little bit. And I, I think I think especially the writers are, and the reporters are going to miss some of that from him. Well, they, don't, wa him. they don't want you to look at them as human. And, and by the way, Kevin Stefanski is, is a good guy. And I finally got a chance to talk to him a little one-on-one -on -one um, when there's a small group of us in West Virginia. Uh, he invited us over to a sports bar. And it was the first time where it was a casual. Think about that. The guy's been coaching for four years. 
casual setting or we could just kind of talk about different stuff, you know, the good guy. But you put them in front of the microphone, and most of these guys are like that. They go into this with the idea, I don't want to say anything to upset anybody. I don't want to say anything that Frank could even be quoted. I just want to get out of there alive. For example, he'll say things like, yes, my Kareem Hunt. Well, I know, you know, Kareem is um, – you know, really glad to be back, and he's happy to be here. Of course, a lot of the guys are happy to be here. You ever notice that? Even when he makes a statement on something, he goes, you know, so, you know, this player needs to work harder, but, well, we all got to work harder. It's like, no, just say it. <laughs> you don't get that, like, that defensive stuff. It's not just him. I swear they're programming him, these guys, this way. And my guess is whomever is the manager next will probably – uh, be that. Now, I will say an exception to that in town is J.B. Bickerstaff. He's sort of more like uh, the Francona mode. He's he's very interesting to listen to. Um, his love of the game comes out. I mean, these guys have to love the game, but they a lot of times it. they don't share it though. They yeah, they don't share it. it. They yeah. hide it. They have personality, but they hide it. They're just afraid. And I and I know they all go through all these seminars and, and things like that. So you're correct. I mean and, and at this point in his career, nobody was gonna really tell Terry Francona how to run a press conference. Well, I'd have to go back and track this, Terry, but I think Terry Francona is a pretty smart guy. And I think like during the twenty sixteen World Series or maybe if they're in the middle of a losing streak, it seems like he'd come. He'd come out. There would be some story about somebody flashing him when he's on. He'd always. It seems like he'd attract the attention to himself. Yeah. With some interesting thing that happened to him, or some story that he came up with, that would kind of pull the pressure off of his team sometimes. And I think that was really shrewd. And I don't know if he did it. On, he probably did do it on purpose. I think, I think he's oh, really he's smart. smart. After yeah. after after the time in Philadelphia and Boston. Uh, only did 12 years and made two major markets. He, he, this was a polished man. This guy was a finished product coming in here. This is not training wheels manager. I mean, this guy came in two major markets, won two world series, been fired twice. Um, came here where, which he considered home. He grew up in Western Pennsylvania and so he was ready to go. The other thing that Francona, even, uh, off the record or whatever, you never heard him say, well, how are we supposed to win here? We don't have any money. By the way, you can get that from some others. Now, he would he would say, we all understand the budget thing. You knew it going in. That's what he would always say. And with people like this, you just try to work around it. And then he would say how the baseball decisions were made for baseball reasons, uh, which the implication is elsewhere was not the case. So. Yeah, and I think his players appreciated him because he never threw them under the bus and always stood up for them. And you know, uh, he would say, "Well, you got to make better plays than that. We have to do a better job on that." As he said, "You can be honest without killing them." That was the exact quote he gave me. That's a good T-shirt. Someone should make that. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Terry Francona T-shirt. So, all right. So that'll be winding down this week, and we're expecting that early next week we will get the official news that his uh, time in Cleveland has come to an end. And He'll be probably spend a lot of time at Arizona University of Arizona basketball and baseball games, yeah. knowing him when he's able to uh, get past some of the health stuff. So, Terry, you've been tracking some. Let's let's start looking forward. You've been tracking some of the the prospects, the Guardians prospects uh, in the minors, minor league seasons winding down if they haven't already. Uh, and I know there's a few people you've really been paying special attention to. Why don't you get into that for a minute? Well, I know when Jones had a really good year for Colorado. Um, the last I saw, he was at like about 280 with 17 homers. I haven't looked for several days, but so people go, who do they get for him? And the player they got is a guy they had been targeting for a while, Juan Brito. And Baseball America named him, Juan Brito, the top prospect in the Guardians farm system. Um, Brito just turned 22 uh, three days ago. He started the year at Class A. He ended up at Triple A. Uh, and that rise, overall, he had 271. With an 811 OPS, 14 homers, 75 RBIs, um, primarily a second baseman, can play some third. And I go, well, another middle infant or whatever. If this guy get hit, I don't care. Find a place to put him out there. And then I ran into a scout from an American League team. This is when I was in Lake County working on a story and chased a water, another player we'll talk about. And so I was talking to him about different. Um, 
Guardians prospects and that. And I said, what do you think? Because Burrito had just gone up to double A. I said, what do you think of Burrito? He says, now, listen how I'm explaining this. He is like a young Jose Ramirez. Not the Jose Ramirez hitting 25 or 30 homers. But if you remember how Jose was a really polished baseball player in his early 20s, you know, good base runner, kind of a dumpy-looking body, but he could play ball. He's just a ball player and uh, just a selective hitter. And he says, this guy, I think, will be in the big league soon, and he'll be productive. I mean, you can't – he says, that's why I say when it, they're not the Jose you see now that they want to build a statue to. But the kid, for example, that hit you know close to 300 in 2016 with, I think it was 12 or 14 homers, and then later on um, was the guy that uh, you know continued to develop. By the way, you know just to make a point on when you really want to get a bat in the lineup, people may have forgotten, but in his past, uh, Jose Ramirez did play 50 games in the outfield primarily in 2016. And so, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yes, he did. And like, for example, I'm looking here in 2016, he came in, and that's when he hit 312 with 11 homers. They extended him. And then the next year, by the way, he had never hit more than I'm looking here, I think like nine homers in the minors. And then the next year, he hit 29 homers. I mean, nobody saw that coming. But what they did see was a guy in the minors who had a career 304 batting average. And then when he came up, um, and got a chance to play full time in 2016. He bet at 312. So that's the player. And I'll take that player anytime. Now you can say they shouldn't have traded Nolan Jones or whatever, but at least the guy they got for him. And it's not just me saying it or a random American League scout. Baseball America also put their seal of approval on him, too. You know, I'm sure they put their seal of approval on guys that have flamed out. But I was encouraged by that. And then I got a, um email from. I'm sorry, text from Jim Clark, who's covered uh, Rubber Ducks baseball back to one of the Akron Arrows. And he said he saw a little bit of the young Jose also in Brito. So there you go. Wow. All right. It's coming in from multiple sources. So, mm-hmm. all right. Um, let's see, Terry. We got a oh, quick... the, other, uh, the other one just mentioned. Uh, uh, yeah. Kyle Manzardo, you know, the, the guy that they got for – by the way, Aaron Savali, the last I look, his ERA was up over five in Tampa. You know, it's again, I'm, I'm didn't wish him ill, but you just sort of they knew that was fool's gold. They just did, and that was now we'll see how Manzardo ends up. Since you know he had had a bad shoulder early in the year, he came back. He was out for like about six weeks before he finally finished the year, and I just checked his stats at um, AAA Columbus. Batting average looks. Ho hum, 256, but the uh, OPS, you know, anything over 800 is good. Over 900 is very good. It's 938, 92 plate appearances. He had six homers, eight doubles, drove in 16 runs. Um, Baseball American also said that, uh, you know, he's really starting to come around. By the way, that's only his second pro season. Like Brito, he's only 22. And um, I know there's prospects, this and that, but sometimes prospects turn into good players. Yeah, and that could be one of those trades where Guardians fans were upset when it went down, but it could pay off for a number of years. So that'll that'll be interesting to watch. So one guy told me he said Manzardo may not be a guy that hits thirty homers, but he could be a guy that hits like twenty some homers and thirty five doubles. In other words, that kind of player. I'll take that too. I'm I'm real interested about anybody that could hit because when I look <laughs> at that, you got all right. Who's the hitters? Go ahead, David. The hitters on the Guardians are. TikTok. TikTok. I'm just going around. Josh Naylor. Yeah. Jose Ramirez. Yeah. And uh, Andre Andre Jimenez when he's hot. When he's hot. Yeah, I mean, exactly. (laughs) I mean, the rest of these guys, I like Quan as a leadoff guy, but can't come up with anybody else. I probably would put Quan on that list. I think he might end up with a a higher batting average than Jose by the end of the season. So Yeah, and also, you know, I'll say say Quan. He got through the second year stuff, which is a challenge. He plays every day. The guy is out, he's small. He's about my size, and believe me, I, I you know, I know what he's listed at, but that means he's like five nine. And he plays every day, he plays hard all the time. 
Uh, you could throw around, put him in, in, in center field next year if you want to do that. He'll be a well above average center fielder. He's gold glove in left field. He steals bases, plays hard. Um, but all right, we got Quan. You got on your list. We got Quan on your list. We got Jose on your list. You got Naylor on your list. And that list has plenty of room for all comers. They will find a home. I'm sure. And especially in left field. So, mm-hmm. um, Hey Terry, I've been holding this letter for a couple of weeks and I told Doug Meredith, long time listener from Akron. I would try to get to it today. We can just get into it real quick. He says, what do you think? He says, Dave and Terry, what do you think about the emphasis on limiting pitches and innings on pitchers, especially young pitchers? Bob Feller must be rolling over in his grave. He says, thanks for that, Doug. Uh, we saw a lot of this Terry this year with the young guys that the guardians brought up. They really wanted to monitor their innings and make sure they weren't getting overused. Uh, you know, this, it's a different game than when Bob Feller played, but do you think it's the right approach to, to too cautious? I mean, not just the Guardians, but everybody in baseball does this, obviously. When I was watching Lake County, their guys were going four innings, and that was it. I mean, unless they only threw like 40 pitches in four innings, but that was it. They are – these guys, they don't know what to do, Dave. They don't know how to avoid arm injuries. My theory, now you're hearing, well, the pitch clock is causing it. No, these guys have been having Tommy John and everything else for years and years. All right. The appearance of radar guns everywhere at almost every level of baseball and the accent on throwing every pitch about as hard as you can, not just not just fastballs, but breaking balls, spin rates, spin rates. Remember you hear that? Well, you try to get a hard slider that spin rate that is rough on your arm and i think you have these young men i even go back to high school or whatever they're coming off the mound going what did i throw what did i get you know did you get them out but no it's it's on that thing the average fastball now is approaching 94 miles an hour i remember when i covered and the radar guns were first coming out in the early 80s it was like 90 and then a few years ago, I want to say about eight or ten years ago, it just hit 92. So it's 94. But think about what the, the stress on the arms. That is your problem. So you can count all your pitches and all that. You know, the. and here's a um, – I remember I was talking to somebody, and they, I said, you guys are just obsessed with strikeout rates. He goes, well, nothing can go wrong with strikeouts. Correct, unless the catcher misses the ball. But what about the what it does to the pitcher's arms when you want a guy that averages 12 or 13 strikeouts per nine innings? So, all right, that's my rant about it, and I'm <laughs> sticking with it. I will suggest it's a book. Jeff Passan wrote a book called The Arm, son of Rich Passan, former Point D.U.A. writer. Uh, he kind of goes over the top on some of this. but No pun intended, right? Yes. Over the top. Over delivery. the top. That's not a great delivery either uh, so, <laughs> for your arm. But it does explain. He, he kind of laid out some of this. It got me thinking about it. And then um, I began reading about the obsession with spin rate. And I'm going, oh, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Think the twisting of your arm and elbow. That's what, Remember, some of us were younger, oh, you can't throw a curveball if you're like 13 or something because you don't want to hurt your arm. So there you go. Yeah, well, and all this stuff is happening with 13-, 14-year-olds with spin rate and, and radar guns. and all. Like it's, It seems like it's it's easy to buy a radar gun now. You just <laughs> order it online. Yeah, yeah so um, all right, Terry, um, let's move on to the Cavaliers. I want to keep us moving here. Media day for the Cavs on Monday, and then they're going to get into camp. I know you're planning on heading over to media day and talking to people. What are you most curious about? to find out and who do you want who do you want to talk to what do you what do you want to learn on monday I mean, one of the stories will be coming out of there now uh you know donovan mitchell uh will have i think he's now and we have to find out exactly when he can sign an extension but it's coming up soon and you know how do you feel about that and then i probably um i would like to look at evan mobley physically did you get bigger and then I went on to talk to J.B. Bickerstaff and say, okay, you, you traded for shooters, specifically Struess, who's a guy that runs a lot of uh, motion, comes around picks to 
catch the ball, catch and shoot. He's not a stand catch and shoot. Niang, the other guy they got, who I'm very high on, by the way, but he's more of a you know, regular corner three guy. But Struis likes to uh, move and, and catch the ball and shoot it. Uh, are, do you plan on having that in your offense? Because otherwise, uh, I have not seen that in the past with the Cavs. So those are just a couple of things there. How about you? Yeah, the JB thing, that's where I was going to go, Terry. I, every At the end of every season, the players all go in with the coaches and, and the front office, and they're like, all right, here's what we like that you did, and here's what we'd like you to work on. And, I mean, you heard it as much as I did. JB was taking some grief after the playoff yeah. loss to the Knicks about, like, did he did he adjust, make enough adjustments? I, I'm kind of curious, like, what did JB do in the offseason yeah. to improve his game? Like, did he go hang out with some coaches that maybe – they could trade ideas. I mean, coaching is an evolving art. We know that regardless of what sport you're in, you have to be changing, learning all the time, or you're going to fall behind. And I'd like to hear JB talk about maybe what he did this off season to kind of make sure that he was ready for this year, just like the players had to and, do. So and I'm sure they dissected those tapes uh, from the Knicks series. I mean, for all the talk about rebounding, they got crushed on the boards. Um, they held the Knicks to 97 points. I think they only averaged 94. If you can't average 100 points, you're lucky to win a game in a series in the modern NBA. Yeah, and this will be a different Cavs looking, a different looking Cavs team. And I think a lot of the questions you ask are kind of, I, I think, where fans want to want to be in terms of what this is going to look like and what they're going to run and all that. So, all right, Terry, I think we're good here. Um, anything else okay. you want to get into today? No, that is, that is it. All right. I think we should give a couple of plugs here real quick. Um, Terry has a weekly newsletter that we've been mentioning on the podcast. If you sign up for it, it's free. Just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and you can click the box. It literally takes like one minute and you'll get everything Terry has done in a given week in your email every Monday. So you can be sure not to miss anything. Uh, We also wanted to make sure we mention it is our 100th episode next week. And we've been asking fans to email in stories about what their connection to Cleveland sports is, where they live now, why they still care. Um, what was the other thing you were asking about last well, week, Terry? Really where they were listening to this, too. Right. Speaking of where, I want to thank about 100 people showed up in Shelby, Ohio, at the Marvin Library, where I'd never been to Shelby or to the library there, and we just had a great time. I had a wonderful drive, by the way. It's almost worth making it from Ashland over to Shelby. You could check the different routes. It goes through Amish country. I saw at least of the six carriages with the horses and farmland, and it was really terrific. So I want to thank everybody in Shelby and say if you want to ride through the country, get off of 71 at Ashland and head towards Shelby. Beautiful part of the state and a great turnout. That's impressive. Um, All right, Terry, uh, we are done. Catch us next week. We'll have the special 100th edition of Terry's Talking Talking.